0: Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo, I'm the author of the film review website Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 reviews written since 1996 there at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Continuing on with the films of 1980s in which there's a monster to have to overcome in order for two lovers to hope to be together, last week I took a look at The Little Mermaid. This week I'm going to continue on a much earlier film in the 1980s. A film that I saw when I was 10 years old, it was called Clash of the Titans. It's a fantasy adventure. It's a PG-rated film for violence and nudity, and it runs an hour and 58 minutes. Harry Hamlin is the main star. Judy Balker, Burgess Meredith, Laurence Olivier, Maggie Smith, and Neil McCarthy get supporting roles. There are a few other recognizable names there in smaller roles. The director is Desmond Davis, and the screenplay is credited to Beverly Cross, As I mentioned, Clash of the Titans is one of my childhood favorites, so I would say take that into consideration as you listen to what perhaps might be an overly nostalgic review of the film, the original Clash of the Titans. I would say it's better known today as the last film that's been worked on by stop motion animation genius creature creator Ray Harryhausen. He did such films as Jason and the Argonauts and the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, notably. But I would say it's in the imaginative scenarios, the colorful villains, the nicely developed action scenes that this Desmond Davis directed fantasy shines. In this day and age of nearly imperceptible CG, Clash of the Titans admittedly doesn't really stack up. The believability of the special effects for its era, even for its era, is wildly inconsistent. In order to appreciate Clash of the Titans on its own terms, I think you have to overlook the artificial-looking visuals for the sake of the robust adventure underneath it. And in that vein, I would say that the film captures the essence, the attraction of Greek mythology, unlike any other film of its era. It may deviate quite a bit from the story and the characters that you find in the ancient text, but while you're watching it, it still wraps you up. You know, in the film's defense in that regard, as far as whether it's an accurate portrayal of Greek myths, I would say that even the ancient Greeks had a very fluid idea of those myths. They often tailored them to the audiences at hand, so some artistic license should probably be deemed as allowable for a modern epic storytelling purpose. The main hero of this story is Perseus, played by Harry Hamlin. He's the mortal son to the leader of the Greek gods Zeus. Perseus was to have his own kingdom when he grew to adulthood, but because of a dispute among the gods, Perseus would find his future kingdom of Argus destroyed, and he would barely escape with his life while he was still an infant. He ends up growing up on an island quite a distance away, and Perseus would soon learn the ways of the warrior. He would also vie for the hand of a beautiful princess named Andromeda, But Andromeda is slated to be the sacrificial virgin to appease the mightiest of the titans, a sea monster known as the Kraken. By the way, the creature's name, the Kraken, is taken from Scandinavian origin, not from Greek mythology. The Kraken is traditionally an octopus, a giant octopus, but Harryhausen envisioned the creature to be depicted as a loving homage to the most popular of stop-motion creatures in cinema, King Kong. The Kraken, the character, is said to be indestructible, but with the help of his captured winged steed, Pegasus, and some magic armor provided by Zeus, Perseus has the tools and the determination to complete the marriage to the fair Andromeda by saving her from almost certain doom. Now, there's more to the story than that, but I won't really fill in some of the blanks because I think that the true delights is in how the film plays out and not necessarily in the main plot line. You can easily remember certain key scenes from Clash of the Titans far more than the whole story anyway. But the strength of those scenes are more than enough to make this a pretty grand adventure. The battle between Perseus and Medusa, for instance, who... I guess Medusa is not really an actual titan from mythology, but I guess none of the rest of the characters in this are either... That's perhaps the key scene of the entire movie, and that's a scene that really frightened me a lot when I was 10 years old, enough to keep my face in my hands during most of that. I can watch it today, but I still think that it's a very palpable and very tense scene. If you watch it today, I think it holds up. The enormity of the Kraken, the detail of Bubo, the mechanical owl, which I think is a which is which I think is a character that really greatly divides audiences. Some who saw this film as a kid love Bubo, but I think if you watch this film as an adult, maybe you actually learn to hate Bubo. Uh, There's the graceful flying gallop of Pegasus, the deadliness of giant scorpions, and the sinister look of the tailed nemesis Calibos, who's actually one of the heavies in this film. By the way, Calibos also is not a character that's born from Greek myths, but probably based on the character called Caliban from William Shakespeare's The Tempest. All of these Harryhausen creations blend very well with the live action to infuse this film with a feel of the fantastic. It's not always convincing. I mean, you obviously know that you're watching fake stop motion animation while they're on the screen, but it's still pretty impressive given the difficulty of adding that stop motion to live action footage. So some kudos there to Harryhausen. Reportedly, Harryhausen was given the concept for the film and proceeded to construct scenes around the myths that he read while he was researching the Perseus myth. And meanwhile, Beverly Cross constructed his, script around the ideas that Harryhausen had brought forth for those action sequences. Harryhausen also made changes to the nature of the creatures. He assumed that they may have been fearful in ancient times, but in today's more discriminating world of cinematic visuals, creatures like Medusa needed a little bit more than snake hair to make her fearsome. He added a serpent's tail and a deadly bow and arrow to make her truly a formidable opponent worthy of a lengthy boss fight. The owl character of Bubo, as I mentioned, he's replaced with a more marketable and memorable mechanical version brought to life by Harry Harryhausen's wizardry. That Bubo character would give the movie a dose of comic relief that captivates those younger viewers to a large extent in the same way that R2-D2 would for the Star Wars films of the era. And a lot of people who knock Clash of the Titans really do so because they think that Bubo is a complete ripoff of R2-D2. But I will say the makers of the film insist that Bubo had been in the early scripting phase sometime before the release of the original Star Wars and was not an attempt to emulate the popularity of the popular droid among kids. You may believe that, you may not, but most critics would also tell you that the acting in Clash of the Titans is a bit of a disappointment. I will go to bat for the casting choices and the performances in the film. Harry Hamlin, I think, is suitably handsome. He's imposing, he's heroic in a classic tradition, shows bravery, shows honor, and and yet you also get the feeling that there's a sense of fear when he's encountering each progressively more menacing set of foes so i think he works pretty well burgess meredith who was primarily cast in order to have a recognizable american actor to help promote the film harry hamlin had never starred in a film before so really wasn't known so burgess meredith had to kind of shoulder that load for the united states He plays a hack tragedian called Ammon in in a very charismatic, somewhat comical sidekick role with Meredith offering a touch of that mental role that serves him well in other films, including the Rocky series. And it doesn't really become overbearing. Having Maggie Smith, Dame Maggie Smith, who happened to be screenwriter Beverly Cross's wife, and their close friend Lawrence Olivier who she helped bring on board. By the way, Lawrence Olivier was very ill during the week that he worked on the shoot and that resulted in his subdued performance. So I think that a lot of people who watch this film because Lawrence Olivier is in here are going to be disappointed that he seems to be well, he seems to be ill and that's probably a reason why You know, this is a cast that's nothing to sneeze at. Even if their roles don't require acting performances that are worthy of their time or their interest, they do provide gravitas. And I think that that's necessary to make the scenes involving the Greek gods weighty and as impactful as they should be. And as for Andromeda in this film, A veteran british tv actress named judy bowker i think does very well in this film i was actually surprised to find that she wasn't a bigger star for her era than she was she's beautiful she's graceful she's royal and she does allow us to believe that this is a woman that is worthy of perseus going to battle to try to marry ursula andrus is in this film she's mostly there to add another name she is a fitting person to play aphrodite she was known as being a sex symbol at the time but her fans may be disappointed to observe that she only has a single line to utter in the film. There is one person who was not disappointed at her casting. That's Harry Hamlin. Hamlin would enter into a relationship with Andrus during the production and with whom Hamlin would have a son, the actress's only child, Dimitri. I think a film that has so much nostalgia for me, I think the one thing that really gets me the most choked up at remembering my childhood in this film is the score it really takes me away every time i hear that score lawrence rosenthal is the composer for this film i would say this is a score that completely enhances the tale it meshes perfectly with the sweeping story with a lot of grace and elegance that you would expect from a film on an epic scale you have London-based interiors at Pinewood Studios that they combine with a lot of good lush locale work that's shot in Spain and Malta and Italy and other Mediterranean locales. And the world of Clash of the Titans really does look authentic and exotic in a very convincing way, even if the special effects at times maybe don't convince as much. This was a very pricey production in Harry Harryhausen's filmography, the most expensive film by him by far. But it would become a pretty big hit. It ranked number 11 overall for the 1981 box office. And that's despite opening on the very same weekend as the number one film of the year, a juggernaut known as Raiders of the Lost Ark. So competing for a lot of the same dollars and doing pretty well, despite the fact that Raiders of the Lost Ark was really cleaning up. As far as from a a personal perspective, I would say Clash of the Titans, even though maybe from a filmmaking standpoint, it's not necessarily as significant. It was significant to me. And that's why I really loved Clash of the Titans. It really opened up a world of interest in the life and the times and the beliefs of the ancient Greeks. And I would credit it as partially responsible for my eventual pursuit of a degree in classics toward the end of the 1980s. I went to college. I was going to be a communication major. But I ended up taking a mythology class for classics and fell absolutely in love with it for a lot of the same reasons why I love this film, and I continued to pursue that until I got a degree in classical civilization. So a very impactful film for me in quite a significant way. Although sword and sorcery films would be all the rage at the time of release of this film, I would say this is one of the very few examples of the timeless appeal of these stories. It's inspired by tales of heroic valor that has survived over centuries. So I do think that it's a film that ultimately will hold up despite the fact that it's dated to be sure because of those special effects but I do think that it's in a very quaint sort of way in a way that you end up liking the film even more because of it. Clash of the Titans ends with a an epilogue of the constellations it has nostalgic beauty to it but I think that the ending in which we know that these stories will stand the test of time, perfectly encapsulate the reason why it's such a treasured film for so many who were fortunate enough to see it, like me, through the indiscriminating eyes of youth. So I really love Clash of the Titans. I can't quite give it the four-star review that I probably would give it if I were just completely basing it on my subjective feelings toward the film, but I do think that it is a good film, and I'm going to give it three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars... On my scale, it means that I do recommend this film if you love these kinds of movies, if you love Ray Harryhausen, Tales of Ancient Greece, and just good sword and sorcery films, and even cheesy special effects films from the 1980s. Certainly, that qualifies as that as well. I really loved it. There was a, a remake that was made in 2010, and it ended up garnering a sequel. I have very mixed feelings on those films, but the main problem that I have with the newer versions, despite better special effects and arguably better acting, is the fact that they are very charmless by comparison this film is so charming in so many ways but I really am enthralled by this film for a lot of reasons I think it holds up much better than the remakes definitely will while the tales of Perseus and all of the characters in this film may live on in the stars the remakes are going to be a footnote in film history when it's all said and done so if you have your own thoughts on Clash of the Titans because I know there are some people that think this movie really is not a very good movie but I would love to hear what you think You can write to me. You can find my contact information on my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I also do newer film reviews you can catch in podcast form. It's a separate podcast, not on this podcast, but do a search for the Quipster Film Review Podcast wherever you're listening to this right now. Before I go, I do want to mention, in finishing up this trilogy of films in which someone has to battle a monster in order to, I guess, gain true love, I'm going to be reviewing another 1981 film, And that is from Disney. It is called Dragon Slayer. But until then, thank you everyone for listening and joining me on this journey around the world in 80s movies.